Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back to Unnatural. We missed you guys last week. I thought that I was dying because of plague, but I did not. I survived. I am here. We are back. The bubonic plague or what kind of plague are we talking here? Like plague that children bring home from daycare. Oh, that plague. Or school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That kind of. That one's pretty bad too. Yeah. But it ended up just kind of being like a 24-hour bug, which was nice, but I still felt miserable for those 24 hours. Each and every one of them. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to be back. I know you're glad to be back. And I know our listeners are, they got a hankering for some murder. I think so too. It's what, you know, it's it's that time of year too. Yeah. Jolly. It's the most murderous time of the year. It might be. I don't know if it is or not, but what do we got today? Yeah. So I kind of just stumbled upon this story and it really kind of hit home for me because as most of us know, I work as a journalist for my day job. And today we are going to talk about the murder of a young 19-year-old girl, a tenacious journalism student trying to make a name for herself before she was brutally taken from this world while researching a possible crime with a local fraternity at her college. This is the story of Brooke Baker. was born on April 24, 1978, to her parents Maurice and Janet Baker. She also had a younger brother. The family was not super well off financially by any means. Um, her parents, and from what it sounds like, her grandparents never even made it to college, so they were really just kind of scraping by, but From everything I understand, they were still a super happy, tight-knit family. You know, money doesn't buy happiness. You don't have to have some grand, well-off family to have a good childhood. So Brooke and her brother were especially close. Uh, They went to high school at South Knox High School in Vincennes, I believe is how you pronounce it. And I tried to Google this, too. Wait, where but is Vincent? What state? Indiana. Oh, okay, you probably already said that. Yeah. And even on the internet, I found several different pronunciations for this town, but I think it's Vincent's. Okay. Well, if it's wrong, I'm sure somebody will tell us. Someone will tell us. Mm-hmm. Brooke was really into band. She was also a member of the Foreign Language Club, Students Against Drunk Driving. She did a little bit of sports, I believe, here and there. But really, she was just passionate about the things she cared about. And she wasn't afraid to make her voice heard. She was known and described as a social butterfly who enjoyed meeting new people. She always liked to strike up a conversation with people. And then in high school, she also did discover a passion for writing and a love for journalism working for her high school newspaper, which can relate. I also did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know straight out of high school or really even in high school that I wanted to do this type of career. It kind of fell into my lap years later, but that's yeah, story for your journey day. was a little bit longer. My journey was a little bit longer. There was lots of twists and turns, a couple of couple roundabouts, you know, but her family, friends, and her teachers knew that she had a natural talent for writing. And she also just kind of had this really great talent at editing, Mm. which I think is really cool because cannot relate on the (laughs) editing standpoint. And I know you put in a lot of effort and work into editing this podcast that you're listening to. So having a natural talent for it, I think is something to be said. They knew she had this natural knack for writing 
editing. No one was really surprised when she expressed an interest in wanting to pursue a career in journalism after high school. Now, her parents were super excited that she had kind of chosen a career, but they were also excited that she was going to be going to college in the first place because, like I mentioned, she was going to be the first to go to college. Yeah. So she had these big dreams. She had big aspirations of becoming a reporter on a national scale. Um, I think she said that her ultimate goal was she wanted to be a reporter for the Rolling Stone. Nice. Because, and like that was just like her passion that she wanted to work towards. And I was like, yes, girl, that would be so cool. And she knew. hmm? I had a subscription to that from like 15 all the way up until like a couple years ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. I also had a subscription to that. So she knew that if she was going to be able to make her dreams a reality, she was really going to have to work for it, put in the effort, make a name for herself. And especially since she came from a really small town in the Midwest, Indiana, she kind of like, you know, she kind of she kind of knew that she had her work cut out for her. She wanted to break free. Yeah. So she did enroll in a two year journalism program at the local uh, university in Vincennes University. And once she graduated from high school, she began her college career. She started working at the student newspaper at her college. Not surprisingly, she was in the journalism program. Obviously, she's going to work at the student newspaper. Yeah. And she really quickly became noted, noticed for her talents and leadership skills. She was getting a lot of experience and looking forward to having just kind of like that creative freedom in her writing. But also she took on some leadership roles with editing and she was quite good at it. She was really kind of a trailblazer at the trailblazer. Yeah. That was the name of the newspaper. Nice. Trademark. That was a good one, right? That, that was a good one. That makes me yeah. feel lazy because when I was her age, I was not a trailblazer at all. No. Same. It was the exact opposite of a trailblazer. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And like I mentioned, she had a really outgoing personality. So she was able to make a lot of quick friends. And one of her friends, Shauna Cooper, they did actually go to high school together, but they didn't really know each other from what I understand. She was also in the journalism program, I believe. Mm -hmm. And Brooke also had a good friendship with a guy named Jason, who was also her roommate. And from what I understand, this was supposed to be a temporary arrangement with Jason until she was able to secure her own apartment. She also was casually dating another student named Steve. Um, Dating was not a huge priority for Brooke. She was really focused on her school and her career. So they kind of dated off and on. Um, It was never really that serious. And then in her second semester of college, she started to push the envelope a little bit with her writing and wanted to dig into bigger stories. So she wanted to start doing a little bit uh, more like investigative journalism versus um, just reporting on student life events, things like that. She really kind of wanted to dig her hands in and like get her hands dirty and really just. She wanted her writing to matter more. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it was kind of around this time where Brooke began hearing rumors around campus that a sexual assault had occurred at one of the local fraternities. Also heard that a lot, like more than one of the fraternities were helping to cover it up. So she wanted to investigate, right? Naturally, she's curious. Yeah. You want to bring justice to this girl who was allegedly assaulted. Well, and prevented from happening again. Yeah, and that's exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to do kind of an expose on the campus fraternities and problems within those activities, kind of like the risky behavior that goes on. And she did know that this was probably going to upset a lot of people, but being that she was determined to make a name for herself and knew that this was going to be a difficult story, she was going to have to ask a lot of hard questions. She also knew that it was a necessary part of the job and like you said she wanted to make sure that you know if she could prevent this from happening again she would well and there were young women all across the country the last 20 years i want to say or so yeah. that have been taking down a lot of these frats that yeah. were 
just terrible for decades and decades. These frats that would just prey upon young women. Yeah. I mean, did you ever like go to frat parties? Fuck or no. Fuck. I, that was not my scene at all. I, I was I went to one frat party and it was like I felt like I was on another planet or something. <laughs> See, I, mean, I, I felt almost as awkward as when I went to a strip club, which was also awkward for me. Also not my scene. Boring. <laughs> well, I used to go to frat parties a lot. Did you? Yeah. This one specific fraternity in Mankato, Phi Kappa Psi. But I feel like my experience at those parties and also just kind of like the people weren't, they weren't really what you think of when you think like stereotypical frat boys and frat parties. Well, yeah. And we should say that they, you know, you shouldn't lump all fraternities into the same bowl here. I mean. But they definitely have a stereotype for a reason. Yeah. You know. But that's not to say that shitty things didn't happen at this house. I was just not, not privy to it. Yeah, not privy to it. I didn't experience it. The guys that I knew that were like brothers were great. I'm yeah. still friends with some of them to this day. So, right. but um, we digress. So she wanted to investigate. She wanted to do this expose. The frats did have a bit of a bad reputation around the community and the campus, but they also had the money, the power, the influence to kind of get away with it. Apparently, they were really influential um, in terms of student life and student government. Hmm. So, Brooke came up with a plan to kind of infiltrate some of the larger fraternities on campus in an attempt to gather the information that she needed. And Jason, her roommate, was a member of one of the fraternities. So, she kind of had an in that way. She had a source. Yeah. Yeah. So... Her friend Shauna, some of the other newspaper staff, and even the professor were like, hey, this could be really dangerous. You know, be careful. But she was determined to write the piece, still went forward with it. Um, Part of the research is she asked Jason and one of his fraternity brothers, Brian Jones, about um, any of the upcoming parties and asked if she could come along. So the big thing at this point in time with a lot of the fraternities is they was they would have big thirsty Thursday parties. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they got wild. There was a lot of underage drinking, drug use that went, you know, well into the very late hours of the night, early hours of the morning, as college parties often do. Probably some hazing. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Now Brooke's main goal for attending this party was really to go gather some basic information, learn names, faces, that sort of thing. I think when when she was going to go to this first party, she really wasn't planning on going in guns a-blazing, you know, being like, I heard somebody was raped in one of these houses. Which one of you did it? You know? Right. She more or less wanted to be a fly on the wall. Yeah. And because she did have such a bubbly, outgoing personality, and I'd even go so far as to say people thought that she was trustworthy, she was able to uncover the name of the girl who was allegedly raped by one of the fraternity members. Wow. And although she was kind of just trying to fly under the radar at first, that didn't stop several of the frat boys from turning their attention to her and kind of being like, what are you doing? Yeah, that's why not are you good. asking questions? That's but I, I do think that this happened over the course of like a few weeks. I think right. So they one of them started to catch on and talk to the other ones about it. Yeah. In their post party um, hangover meetings. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know as. You can imagine some of these guys started getting pretty pissed that she was snooping around and asking questions. Yeah. But Brooke kept going. She interviewed several female students who had had less than great encounters with these guys. And she did get in touch with the 
girl who was allegedly raped. And this girl at first did agree to speak with her and they kind of set up a time to meet and talk and whatnot. But on the day that they were supposed to meet and talk, she changed her mind, clammed up, said she didn't want to talk about it. Which is understandable. Yeah. And then very shortly after is when Brooke started to get threats and harassing emails from some of the fraternity members. At one point in time, there was a note left on her door telling her to watch her back and to stop asking questions, which big yikes. But at the same time, like as a journalist, that's kind of where things get difficult. You know, like I've never received threats, but I've definitely gotten hate mail from people. But it's like when when you really feel like you're onto something and you're really passionate about it, like you kind of almost throw caution to the wind a little bit because you want to uncover the truth. Well, and if they're sending you stuff like that, you know, hey, there's something here. Yeah, exactly. That was like the next point in my notes was that when people start getting pissed off at you mm-hmm. and threatening you, that's when you know you're on the right track. Where there's smoke, sure. there's fire. Yep. And then um, things just kind of started escalating with the threats and harassment. At one point in time, a truck full of these fucking frat bros showed up to dr- drove up to her apartment outside and they were threatening her, you know, just telling her to stop asking questions. They're, you know, going to kill her, make her disappear, make her regret, blah, blah, blah. Told her that she would be dead if she wrote any story about the fraternity. But Brooke was scared, but for the most part seemed a little unfazed. And she was still determined to go forward with the story because she, you know, she felt it was important. She wanted to protect any other potential victims yeah, or maybe even encourage any victims to speak up. Yeah. Because if she, if she's just gonna, you know, regress and go away, then how does she expect anybody else to come forward? Right. Yeah. So after the truck full of guys pulled up outside her apartment, that's when she really was kind of like, Okay, I got to move out because, you know, she was rooming with Jason, who was a member of the fraternity. I think there was another one or two guys that lived there, too, that were also um, fraternity brothers. But I'm not 100% sure on that. I kind of saw some conflicting reports in the sources. But she did end up moving out of the apartment and into her own place, which was just a little apartment. Technically, it was it was an off-campus apartment, but it was literally like right across the street from where she would have worked at the Trailblazer. Mm. And I think she, at first, she felt a little bit of comfort here because the landlord was Mike Nardine, who was also one of the campus security officers. So she's thinking campus security, this is going to be safe. Yeah. Safer. Maybe it'll deter these guys from, you know, finding her and continuing to harass her, like, at her home, at least. Yeah. But, as it turns out, Mike was kind of a creep himself. Uh Uh-oh. He would show up unannounced. Uh, One time at night, he was walking outside the apartment, shining lights in her windows. There was one time where she was taking a shower and he let himself in. What the fuck? 
Yeah. So, like, she got out of the shower and, like, heard something in the kitchen or the living room. And she's like, that, that is, like, my greatest fear. You know, because that's, like, when you are... Vulnerable. The most vulnerable. Yeah. Because you're just getting out of the shower. You probably only got a towel on. You think someone's in your house. That's just, like, a big nope. And he had claimed to be there for some legit reason. Bullshit. But... Exactly. I my next sentence in my notes is seems like bullshit because a there are laws about yeah. this kind of thing. You like can't as a just landlord, go in there, you have to give them notice. Yeah. Usually, it's yeah. at least twenty four hours, unless there's yeah. a super emergency. But even then, you have to let them know you're coming in. Yeah, and like it was nothing like that. So Brooke obviously was like, "What the fuck are you doing? Get the fuck out!" And he did end up leaving. And it was after that that she put an ad in the school newspaper looking for a roommate. But she didn't really get much response. Yeah. Which is too bad because at that point she was probably a little freaked out and wanted some sort of person there to be with her as a companion in case this thing happened again. I'd be pretty lacrimose. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But she was still determined to have a good college experience, despite the threats, despite the creepy shit with Mike. Uh, but she did file an official complaint with the campus police about the harassment from the fraternity brothers. She wanted extra pr- pr- uh, patrols to be going by her house. And I'm not sure what exactly came of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think nothing really came of it because on September 6th, 1997, Brooke and her on-again, off-again boyfriend Steve went to one of the frat parties together. Steve ended up drinking a lot and like kind of passed out at the house. So Brooke ended up going home by herself, but this party would be the last time that she would be seen alive. So around 9 p.m. on September 7th, Brooke's brother showed up at her apartment looking for her. Now, remember, these two are really close. Uh, His name is Braun. He had a key to her apartment. So when she didn't answer the door, he let himself in and he thought, oh, maybe like she's not home. She's off doing something, whatever. But when he entered the apartment, he noticed the sound of running water coming from the bathroom. So he goes into the bathroom and the faucet is on, but there were also towels and a bottle of bleach in the tub. And there was water all over the bathroom floor. And he's like, what the fuck? That's a bad sign. And then he, so then he starts walking through the apartment looking for her. And he notices that her bedroom door is cracked open a little bit. So when he peeked inside, he saw her, he saw Brooke laying on her mattress on the floor. So like the mattress had been pulled on the floor and she was laying on the mattress. Oh my God. She wasn't wearing any clothes, but he couldn't really tell this at first because it's 9 p.m. It's, it's dark. So at first he kind of thought that maybe she was sleeping. And then I think he called out to her and she didn't move. She didn't say anything. And that's when he realized that, um, Something was wrong. He saw blood and he saw visible stab wounds on her chest. So he did call 911. The cops arrived and secured the scene. You know, no one in or out. They were quick to notice that there were no signs of forced entry. Mm. So they believed that whoever had done this was someone that she knew and had likely allowed into her apartment. Or the fucking landlord. Yeah. Right. And the lead detective on the case kind of, you know, they they all started searching for clues, doing their police work, and they took note of the towels and whatnot in the tub and that the, the faucet was left on. There was also a bloody knife in the kitchen sink, but they think that whoever had done this had kind of attempted to clean up the scene, but they didn't do a great job because there was two empty bottles of dish soap Mm. by the sink like someone had tried to scrub 
evidence off of whatever, but yeah. there was still blood on the knife. Yeah. So they didn't do a great job. Right. And then in Brooke's bedroom, there were signs on her body that she had been restrained. There was bruises on her wrists, pelvis, legs, and on like the back of her elbows. Um, so it was, it was very clear that she had put up a fight and that was kind of further proven by she was stabbed twice in the chest and 11 times in her back. And there was blood splatter all over the walls. She had, um, she had skin under her fingernails. So they were able to collect that, um, Brooke also had been raped, so there was semen collected from her body and um, also on the sheets. Terrible way. Terrible way to go. Yeah. Especially since she had been fighting, you know, against people like that. Yeah. Whoever this ends up being, you know, and then that was her ultimate fate, too. It's just so terrible. So tragic. Yeah. And then the coroner concluded that she was also likely strangled but she died due to blood loss. So police are getting to work trying to figure out who did this, but it would still be a few weeks before the DNA testing would be complete. So in the meantime, I imagine they're questioning quite a few people. Yeah. And like, it's, it's a relatively small town, Relatively small campus. Brooke also knew a lot of people, though, right? So they had a long list of people to talk to, but they did start with those closest to her in hopes of narrowing down the list. Her brother told police about Steve. Steve was interviewed. It was confirmed. You know, he confirmed that, like, yes, we were at this party. I had been drinking very heavily, maybe even was getting high. And he did say that she went home alone he stayed behind. Well, and he probably felt like shit because, oh my God, had I not gotten so wasted, I could yeah. have been there with her. Yeah, I'm sure. But because he was so drunk and very not sober, he didn't recall exactly what time she left. And his recollection of the details of the party, who was there, everything weren't super reliable yeah and this would be true for many people they interviewed at the party many confirmed that they had seen brooke yes she was there but no one really knew for sure what time she left no one was sure if she left with anybody but i think at this point in time her and steve were kind of in the on part of their on again off again Mm -hmm. relationship so maybe people assumed that well steve stayed behind at the party so probably yeah she went home by herself. Yeah. I mean, it, th- from what I can tell, she wasn't really, she wasn't like super, you know, promiscuous mm-hmm. or whatever. Even when her and Steve were off, it's not like she was out dating a whole bunch of other people because I think largely why their relationship was so on again, off again is neither of them really wanted to settle down and be serious because. Well, they're young. Yeah. Yeah. They're young. You know, he's probably focusing on just like partying and having a good time. She's really like focused on wanting to get somewhere with her career. So that's just kind of how it was. Mm -hmm. But then the, uh, some of the fellow journalism students and the professor were also interviewed. They had told the police about this story that she was working on. And, you know, they told the cops about the concerns that they had with all of these threats she was getting. And they did suspect that that probably had something to do with, her murder. Um, and Brooke had also confided in them the issues with her landlord that he was kind of freaking her out. So good. I was wondering. Yeah. Now, apparently some other women around campus said similar things about Mike, the landlord that he was just kind of creepy. No one really seemed to like him a whole lot. So now he's kind of becoming a person of interest. Yeah. But he's like, nope, I have an alibi. I was working that night. Here's my time slip to prove it. But his patrol route went right past the apartment. Oh, that's right. He was a security guard. Yeah. So they didn't really have any solid evidence that 
he did it, but they didn't really have anything definitively saying that he did it. Yeah, that's not really a concrete alibi. Yeah. I mean, if he was like in an office or something. Right. Doing patrol work all night, like that's a totally different story. But that's Mm -hmm. not that's not quite the case because he very easily on route could have stopped outside, went in. You know, he obviously has a key. He's a landlord. He could have went in, killed her, went on his merry way, acted like nothing happened. Yeah. But attention also was on the fraternity brothers. And, uh, you know, they were kind of given the cops the runaround a little bit because, you know, they would talk to one guy and, you know, they would talk to, I don't know, Johnny. And then Johnny's like, oh, you want to talk to Tyler? And Tyler's like, no, you want to talk to Rob? And Rob's like, no, you want to talk to Ryan? Or, you know, that's just kind of what was happening with these guys. Investigators are kind of concerned that whoever did this could literally be anyone because of the lack of leads yeah and the fact that she if you remember she posted in the student newspaper that she was looking for a roommate Mm -hmm. so it was also theorized well maybe someone came by posing to be a potential you know interested in the ad and then that's how they got in to the apartment but so eventually the dna panel from Brooke's body was compared against more than 50 different people from around campus. I think kind of like very, like towards the, the end of the, the bulk of the investigation, I think it was closer to a hundred people who had voluntarily given up their DNA samples to like be compared to the DNA that was found on Brooke's body. Isn't that um, crazy? Yeah. DNA is literally the biggest game changer in the history of criminology, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine where we would be if DNA didn't exist? Like a hundred years ago, like they didn't even know DNA was a thing. You yeah. know, it's crazy. It is crazy. The case did eventually go cold because they really were kind of honing in on Steve and Mike, but DNA rules them out. So they're back to square one. DNA didn't match any of the people oh. they collected samples from. Wow. That's a fairly shocking. Yeah. And I read in one report that um, like near nearly everybody on campus had been tested. Almost everybody. Wow. Yeah. And none of them were a match. So now they're like, well, who the hell is it? Yeah. You know? Was Mike Nardini tested? Huh? Was Mike Nardini tested? Yeah. Okay. Just checking. Didn't match. Hmm. Because you were really thinking it was Mike the cop. I was thinking it was him. Yeah. Yeah. You led me down that red herring perfectly. I did. (laughs) So the cops are like, well, okay. So it had to have been someone known to her probably, right? No fourth century. It wasn't her boyfriend. It wasn't. Mike, the sketchy landlord, it wasn't the bulk of the fraternity brothers because they were all tested. So who is it? Mind you, Brooke's parents and her brother are just devastated because the case really just kind of came to a standstill. And they were really worried that their daughter's murder was going to go unsolved like so many had before her because it was like, like, what do we do now? Yeah. Like, I think they don't even have a lead. Yeah. And then in November of 97, Brooke's dad went looking um, to the FBI for help and wanted the FBI to get involved. And her parents really never stopped advocating for justice. They were pointing fingers at the fraternity because, it, like, you know, I think they just knew that there was all this these threats. There was this harassment. They're like, they missed someone in the frat like it's got to be them either somebody's protecting somebody or somebody knows something yeah and they really started to hone in on this specific fraternity sigma pi because from what i understand that's kind of where like the the bulk of the fraternity brothers that were threatening her came from this sigma pi fraternity and i don't know how many there were 
here, like how many different frats there were. I assume more than one, but I don't, I don't know specifically how many. Yeah. Um, so the case goes cold for two years. There was really no forward movement at all until July 5th, 1999. Police in the area got a call that would change everything and broke, blow Brooks case wide open all over again. So another student by the name of Erica Norman, student at the same college went missing. Wow. Now when they went, when police went to her apartment to investigate, they found a scene that was shockingly similar to the scene in Brooks apartment. Erica was not there, but there was blood on the walls, clear signs of struggle. There was furniture flipped over. Um, but what stood out to them the most is when they entered, the water in the bathroom tub was running and there were cushions in the tub. Now, Weird. remember, Brooke's apartment, the water was running, but there were yeah. towels in the tub. But the water running is just... Is that like the killer's trademark? That's their, like the thing. Their lame-ass trademark? Yeah, and I don't know why. But um, they did assume that Erica was dead, even without the body there, just because the sheer amount of blood spatter blood that was found throughout her apartment. That's what it reminds me of. I'm like, what? What does that remind me of? It reminds me of the movie Home Alone. Remember the uh, guys that uh, break into Kevin's house? Their name yeah. is the Wet Bandits because every place they br- break into, the th- last thing they do before they leave is they leave the water running. Do they? It, yeah. Maybe they got it from oh. the Wet Bandits. Maybe. That's weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> Home Alone had been out for like seven years at this time. I don't know. It's just weird. A weird yeah. coincidence. Well, you know what's even weirder, though, is because a movie will come into play shortly, but not Home okay. Alone. <laughs> okay. God, so, if it well, would have been Home Alone. Jesus. Oh, my God. I would have died. <laughs> I would have died if, like, you got this movie ref- movie reference. Okay. I'm going to keep thinking about it. Okay. So, police did find that Erica had gone to a bar the night before she went missing. Uh, They were able to confirm that she was there. And just by sheer luck, the person that worked at the bar that they talked to knew the name of the person Erica was with that night. Hmm. And she was with a guy by the name of Brian Jones. Oh. Do you remember that name? I do. Yeah. He was friends with roommate Jason. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, our first connection. So, Brian was a member of Sigma Pi. So, police immediately tracked him down, brought him in for questioning. He did admit that, yes, I was at the bar with Erica. I took her home. We had a lovely night together, and then I left. So, whatever happened after I left... Wasn't me. Bullshit. Police are thinking, okay, we have this super weird similarity in crime scenes. So they're like, well, maybe we should just double check the DNA and like make sure, like, make sure Mm -hmm. that Brian's DNA was never matched or missed or. Something, Whatever, you know, yeah. from two years earlier when Brooke was killed. But Let's guess what? Let's follow this hunch. Yeah. Guess what? What? They didn't have a sample from Brian. Oh. So they're like, how did Brian slip through the cracks? Because they had tested damn near everybody on campus. Yeah. Right? Turns out, shortly after Brooke's murder, Brian moved away. Oh. Which... Didn't really stand out to anybody at the time because it's a college town. People come People and go moving all the, all the time. time. Yeah. yeah. So, but Brian comes back and now he's the lead suspect in the disappearance and likely murder of Erica. 
like I said, he he admitted to being at the bar with her, going to her house. He said once she fell asleep, I left and went home. And he seemed very willing to be able to help out with the investigation. And he offered up his DNA wow. willingly. Hmm. But the police had plans to compare his DNA against um, the DNA found on Brooke's body. But they didn't tell Brian this. Hmm. Right? So he didn't know that that's what... The plan was. Right. And wouldn't you fucking know it? A match. A match. Mm. A match to the skin cells under her fingernails and the semen that was collected. Got him. Got him. He's immediately arrested on murder charges. Nice. They hadn't found Erica's body yet, but they still believe that he murdered her. And then the second, you know, Brooke's name gets brought up and like these murder charges are are coming down, he shuts up. Shocker. He doesn't want to cooperate. Yeah. But it didn't really matter because they had the fucking DNA. They right. had a lot of circumstantial evidence with, you know, knowing that he's a member of this fraternity, the harassment. They have the DNA. So the police are thinking they got a pretty good case against him. Mm-hmm. Several witnesses did end up confirming that Brian was at that same party that Brooke was at the night before she died. So they think that Brian either followed her home or um, maybe he like offered to walk her home or something. And like she invited him into the apartment that night and was killed. Or, you know, they think that, you know, she invited him in and he probably tried to make an advance on her and she was like, no, thank you. And he got angry, forced himself on her and then killed her. But here's where the movie comes in. So a couple days before he had rented a movie called Curdled. Have you ever heard of it? No, I hadn't either. I'm going to look that up. But apparently in this movie, there is a scene where um, a man stabs a victim several times in the chest and in the back and then goes to clean the knife in the victim's sink. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Because yeah. similar things were found at both apartments. I guess in the movie, he's called the Blue Blood Killer. It could be argued that it's a stretch, that he was inspired by this movie, right? Yeah. But it's not the first time we've heard something like this because there are a handful of cases out there where movies come into play where the crime is very similar to a movie that was known to have been watched by the killer recently. TV shows, you know? too. There, TV shows. Been... Remember Don't Fuck With Cats? Yeah, yeah. And there yeah. was... Um... There's been a few episodes of CSI, too. Yeah. And like Law and Order, where people have tried to mimic stuff. Right. So, I mean, watching movies and TV shows isn't like a huge red flag because, like, I think if if watching gory shows and movies is a red flag, then every single person who's ever watched a single episode of Dexter should probably be investigated right now. You know what I mean? Or listen to a podcast. Right. (laughs) Whoops. But it was just kind of one of those really strange coincidence type things. But then about one week after being charged with Brooke's murder, police were able to locate Erica's body. She was found in a cornfield just outside of town. She had been stabbed. Um, I believe she was also sexually assaulted. And Brian did end up pleading guilty to Erica's murder but he maintained to deny any sort of involvement in Brooke's murder. Wow. Which you'd think, you'd think it would be the opposite. Yeah. If if anything, because clearly they had his DNA to link him to Brooke. Right. But as far as I could tell, they didn't have his DNA to link him to Erica, but he still pled guilty to her murder. Who can but see But he the did logic? admit to being with her that night inside the yeah. apartment the night she was murdered. He's just a fucking dummy. Yeah. Obviously. Mm -hmm. But then, so the case um, for Brooke's murder went to trial in December of 2000. And Brian was found guilty of Brooke Baker's murder. And he was sentenced to life in prison. 
Good. As and he then, should be. Well, and here's where it just gets kind of ridiculous because in 2002, he filed to appeal his conviction on the grounds that even though there was DNA evidence showing that he had had sexual contact with Brooke, that wasn't really, you couldn't really say that it wasn't consensual. <gasps> right? You couldn't really say that just because there was semen and skin under her fingernails that he was the one who actually murdered her. Oh, my God. Like, the DNA suggests a possibility, but it doesn't really prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Wow. He did not get off for this. No. But I mean, like, to play devil's advocate a little bit, it could be a good argument if we knew that Brooke had been the type to, you know, hook up. But by all accounts, that's not who she was. It's a big stretch. Mm Mm-hmm. To try and use that as the reasonable doubt. Right. But the court obviously wasn't buying it, and they felt that the DNA and circumstantial evidence was enough to uphold his conviction. Because also, in Brooks' trial, they weren't, the the jury and whatnot wasn't allowed to know about him pleading guilty to Erica. So, like, that was completely mm. kept out of it. Interesting. So, it was completely just based on everything that they had, and they still found him guilty. Wow. So, it's like, come on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he is still in prison in Indiana to this day. And he will be for and the rest of his life. he will be there yeah. for the rest of his life. Justice and served. Yeah, both Erica and Brooke's family finally got that closure. They got justice. It's sad. You know, we were talking about her boyfriend. Had, had he not been so inebriated, she might not have died. And had Brian Jones been caught after Brooke's murder, then Erica wouldn't have died. But we yeah. see this so often with killers. You know, once they yeah. once they kill and they get away with it, they feel compelled to do it again. Yeah. They can't well, help I themselves. Just, I just find it interesting that Brian came back in the first place. Yeah, that's weird. Like if he if he had gone Literally anywhere. And even if he killed somebody else and did the whole leaving the water on, like, let's say, like, let's say he moved to, to, to Arizona, right? Yeah. Did the same thing. And he did the same thing. Like, they were probably not going to connect it to Indiana. At least not for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, good thing that he's a fucking idiot and he came back. Otherwise, Brooks. Murder might never have been solved. Yeah. And had he done this anywhere else, that wouldn't have been solved either, likely. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the story of Brooke Baker. And I'd, I'd like to think that she'd be heading Rolling Stone's writing team right now. She absolutely would be. She absolutely would have uncovered all of the dirty fraternity secrets mm-hmm. of the campus. Because, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if anybody ever found out who committed the sexual assault on campus in the first place. Yeah. But I mean, given what happened to Brooke and Erica, I don't know that it would be outside the realm of possibility that that was Brian too. Yeah. Who knows. Either way, her shedding lights on that first case and some of the work she did, I'm sure helped a lot of women. Yeah. And even her, ultimately her death. Yeah. You know. Sad case, but we've seen so many like that. We have. And That's if tough. our listeners can think of similar cases that they kind of want to go over or maybe some other theories on Brian Jones. How can they find us? They can find us on Instagram at unnatural, the podcast on Facebook, unnatural, a true crime podcast. You can also send us a Gmail to unnatural, the podcast at gmail.com. Also consider signing up for our Patreon where you can get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. That is patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. As always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, share us with your friends. 
because we love that. Yeah, we love you those five what? stars. You know what? Hmm. If you're kind, inflation is a thing, right? Yeah. But you want to give your friends and family a really great Christmas gift. Give them the gift of unnatural. It's free. <laughs> it's free. Well, I mean, maybe gauge what kind of person they are first. I don't want don't don't put this on your religious aunt who uh you know uh doesn't believe in uh swearing or talk of promiscuity or No, do it. Give it to her. <laughs> she can get over it. It's 2022. It's almost 2023. This will be a good learning experience for her. Keep up with the times. Yeah. Janet. In the meantime, we will Talk to you next week, but the final week of the year. The final week of the year. Mm-hmm. It's been a wild one. It has, as these last few have. We're used yeah. to it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> we got thick skin now. We do. If we can the deal thickest. with 2020, we can deal with anything. Yeah. That is fair. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, in the meantime, be sure to make good choices. And don't get got. Mo money, mo problems is what I say. Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> We're, we're very white when we say that. Yeah. <laughs> the caucasity. <laughs> Sometimes my editing is towards your own detriment. Mine? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm kidding. Pe- I'm, only, I'm only saying that because, because back in the day when we were first starting this, you thought I was like putting uh, only your stuff in the outtakes to make you sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> But, but as you... it turns out, I just am naturally the idiot. <laughs> I think you could go back to plenty of moments where I sound like a fucking moron. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. You just don't tell on yourself as often. Yeah, maybe that's it. It's funny that he was saying it wasn't me. Because that was it like one of the... Me. That was like the biggest hit of the... the 1999, right? I'm pretty sure that's when that song came out. I yeah. even had it on the counter. Wasn't, Wasn't me. me. <laughs>